The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, aka Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is the Dean of the UCI School of Engineering, Magnus Eggerstadt. He arrived on campus last summer, and now that he has settled in for a little while, I thought it would be a great time to see how things are going in his highly technological world of engineering. I'm super excited to hear all about it. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Dean Eggerstadt. How are you today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. And the first order of business is call me Magnus rather than Dean Eggerstadt. Super, super. I, well, but I, just so you know, I love your name. It, it sounds like a, a, a rock band or something like that. So, uh, you know, Van Halen, Magnus Eggerstad, whatever. I th- you, you got a future, man. <laughs> cool. Yeah, the, I think the, the ambition is to be a, a one name person, right? Like Plato uh, or, or Madonna or, yeah, or yes. Magnus. Yeah, Magnus. I, I like it. I like it. So, well, hey, why don't we just start from the beginning? Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Yeah, so I'm uh, born, raised, and, and educated in, in Stockholm, Sweden. So Northern Europe, I am used to being cold. So I'm very much liking the, the change of scenery here in Southern California. And uh, I mean, growing up, I, I really wasn't a particularly engineering-focused kid. I didn't play with uh, or, or you know, work on cars or have a soldering iron in my, uh, in my closet instead. You know, I played soccer. That was what I did. I uh, really, really thought that the coolest thing on the planet would be to be a professional soccer player. Uh, yeah. Never quite played out, but uh, that was my ambition. Yeah. Well, are you pretty good? Like, you know, just for a regular guy, are you pretty good? I, for a 50-year-old man, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> uh, I, I still secretly think that the Swedish national team may call me up at some point. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, based on what you've accomplished, you know, time will tell here. So uh, very good. When did the university start to, you know, perkle when you were kind of ending the high school kind of years? Or when did you decide to go to university? 
first of all, I, I always kind of knew that I was, I wanted to go to the university. I, I wanted to, to study. I didn't really know that I was going to do engineering. In fact, I, uh, when I was around 10 or so, my, my uncle who was, he had long hair and listened to Rolling Stones and was my cool uncle. He, uh, <laughs> he gave me this really thick book. This was Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy. And he, uh, he told me the story how he one night woke up and uh, he just he had been reading this book and now he knew how the universe was organized and then he went back to sleep and when he woke up he had forgotten about it and uh, this was he said you know he, uh, he had given up and now he was up to me to figure it out and uh, <laughs> this was kind of a big deal to me so I, I read I read a lot of philosophy and I really loved the philosophical approach so uh, I did start uh, studying philosophy at Stockholm University. I, I actually have a bachelor's degree majoring in, in philosophy. So that was kind of what I thought that I was interested in. But I got increasingly drawn to uh, questions around consciousness and mind and maybe the more kind of analytical sides of philosophy, logic. And uh, I also started to feel a little bit, and don't tell my philosophy <laughs> colleagues on campus this, that you know, talk is cheap. And at some point, let's not argue about whether or not we can build a robot that feels pain or feels love. Let's, let's build one. So I, uh, I kind of viewed engineering as a, uh, you know, practical philosophy, if you will. Let's, let's kind of try to build these machines and understand something about, you know, the human mind along the way. So I actually attended another university after that, the, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. I, uh, I got a master's degree in, in engineering physics and uh, all of a sudden realized that, yeah, engineering is where it's at. That's what I want to spend my, uh, my career doing. Gotcha. And it looks like, you know, between, well, I guess you got philosophy. It was a philosophy and linguistics degree, right? So yeah. was there, does that mean you study the different languages or what does that mean? No, I, I was more studying organizing principles and grammar and where does language come from and, and you know, Noam Chomsky kind of stuff, uh, generative grammars. And I was, I was really fascinated with, uh, with these questions of what, what is language and where does it come from and what does meaning mean and uh, more the kind of underpinnings rather than particular languages. Yeah, okay, interesting. So then you get your master's degree in not just engineering, but engineering physics. Yeah. That is there a distinction? I, I mean, it, it was kind of the part of engineering that was closest to the sciences. So it was uh, for engineers that didn't quite know what kind of engineering they wanted to do. So, mm -hmm. so it was more kind of the, the sciencey side of engineering. But I think the closest degree here would be almost electrical engineering. At least that's kind of the flavor that, that my studies took. So when I'm not being interviewed by you, I say that I'm an electrical engineer rather than engineering physics. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What about major early influences in this area? Do you feel like you had some? Not, not really, not mm. early influences. I got to say, I, when I said that I started to feel like an engineer and I realized that I've always been an engineer without knowing it, is mm. I, I kind of love this. There are two, two aspects to engineering that I think are fascinating. One is this uh, just imagining or picturing things that don't exist yet. So how do we make this world better somehow? And, and the first step is just imagining it. And the second is kind of willing it into existence. And engineering involves both, right? It involves 
the, this creative side of trying to figure out solutions to problems that we sometimes didn't even know we had and then taking it from thinking about things to actually making it a reality and and i i love the, this kind of two-pronged approach to to approaching problems mm, mm, okay very good was there any particular one or two engineers or scientists that you were you know really thought were pretty pretty cool guys pretty impactful yeah i mean i uh i like people that come up with frameworks or theories that that capture a lot of our world around us where all of a sudden a lot of things make sense uh, yeah so so newton i mean he uh. was the, the the mechanical world stuff that moves right i mean newton very very crisply came up with a way for us to understand a lot of things uh yeah. so i think uh, you know sir isaac newton is 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 a big deal uh, on the electrical engineering side there's someone that's not quite as well known so his name is james clerk maxwell and he's the the man mm. behind something known as maxwell's equations these are mm. Four equations that capture everything around electromagnetics. So everything around electricity that we understand today can be traced back to Maxwell. So he also, if Newton is the, let's say, the, the godfather of mechanical engineering, Maxwell is the godfather of electrical engineering. And then they've been similarly impressive. And then, you know what, you, you got to like Einstein. He also, he really took, you know, Maxwell and, and, and Newton and made it make sense for the very very big and the very very small and the high energy and just the strangest aspects of our universe all of a sudden and then you know we go all quantum mechanics and it becomes even more complicated but but if i have to name three that i think are pretty cool newton maxwell and, and einstein certainly would be uh, on the podium yeah 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 it's amazing how those names uh over time as i've interviewed scientists the, those are the names that come up most of the time. So very, very interesting. And, and then you've got your PhD in applied mathematics. That's, you know, I, you know, it, it seems like really a kind of a brilliant choice. You know, did, did, did you, did you think like, Oh yeah, I just want to get, I want to get so rock solid in math that I'll be able to go any places. Was it like that or, or what was it like? Kind of was. I, I, I've always found the precision that comes with expressing things mathematically to be really pleasing. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten to the point where I, I lacked the tools that I needed to do what I wanted to do. And math was really the, the direction to go. But, but I got to say, I ended up being the most applied, applied mathematician ever to graduate, I think, because... <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not a mathematician. I got, I got folded into a, it was interesting. It was a, a new robotic center that was stood up in Stockholm and they had one grad student PhD slot in mathematics. And my, my advisor, who is a, a real mathematician, he said, well, you know, I, I don't really know what robotics is, but I know this guy at, uh, at Berkeley. So why don't you go there? So I spent a lot of time as a grad student at Berkeley in electrical engineering, studying robotics. So I do, you know, say I, and I indeed have a degree in applied math, but you know what? It was electrical engineering and robotics. <laughs> so, we we keep coming back to electrical engineering. They yeah. call it oh, it's electrical engineering. Yeah. 
in terms of your schooling, I recently interviewed uh, Nobel laureate David McMillan in chemistry, and he actually said his first year in college, undergrad, he wanted to quit. He didn't think he would cut it. Did you have any any tough time that you recall in school when you're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to make it or was there any tough time? I wouldn't say tough time, but I got better as I got older. I was, you know, an okay K through 12 high school student. I was reasonable as an undergrad. I wasn't one of these amazing straight A students in, in undergrad. Uh, and I, but, you know, it, it wasn't a struggle. My struggle was more I was too intellectually curious. There were too many things I wanted to do and I couldn't decide really. And as, as you can probably tell that I, I was jumping around a little bit. Uh, so it was, it was more a lack of focus than, you know, an existential angst that I was going to not make it through. But then in grad school, that's where I uh, felt that I was actually good at this. And I, I loved I loved the research side and I loved being around smart and passionate people that really cared about their problems. And there is something really appealing about even if someone is studying the most esoteric little thing, if you care about it, if that person cares about it, it becomes interesting. And I, I really fell in love with, with that world. And that's also when I realized that, no, I, I got I to gotta pursue an academic career. I want to be a professor. Yeah. Yeah, uh, very cool. You know, your enthusiasm is apparent. So very, very cool. I guess you did postdoc work for about a year and a half. Is that right? In Harvard? Yeah. What, was it hard to get there? Did, you know, how did that come about? Yeah. So I, there, there was a postdoc position opening up and <laughs> uh, for a very famous, he was doing nonlinear control professor. His name is Roger Brockett. And, and Roger, uh, he came to one of the major controls conferences and people had applied for the position and uh, he interviewed them. And his interview quest was simple, which is, and I, I love this. He asked, what is the one theorem in mathematics that you truly feel that you understand? Which I thought was a cool question. And uh, I don't know what other people answered, if they went, tried to be fancy or not, but I decided to, you know what, I'm going to go easy. So I said, I understand something called the triangle inequality, which is, it's basically Pythagoras' theorem. Oh. That, was, that was the level of understanding. And I yeah. think he appreciated that approach. So yeah. that was my interview. And he's like, yeah, cool. And uh, then I got yeah. a job at, at Harvard. And what I learned there, which I've really taken to heart, was just because you can solve a problem doesn't mean you should. You should be careful about what you work on because it matters. So I started to kind of develop a, a sense of style and a sense of taste when it came to, here are the things that I want to be known for and here are the, the questions that I care about. And I'm not going to go after things just because that's where the money is. I'm going to go after things that I genuinely care about. <laughs> End of sentence. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dropped the <laughs> mic. There's nothing more going on. There. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, it, it, just excuse me for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Dean of the School of Engineering, Professor Magnus Eggerstadt. And we've just been getting to know him, and we've gone through his academic career, or at least his learning when he was a student. But now he's you know, graduated with his PhD, he's going through postdoc, and I think he gets his first job at Georgia Tech, the Georgia Institute of Technology. 
Is that true, Professor, or did you go someplace in between? No, that's it. I, I like it how you, uh, you know, here's the origin story. Now let's start uh, the movie. <laughs> so uh, indeed. So I was at Boston at, at Harvard, and I actually thought I was going to go back to Sweden, but I was, you know, started dating this, this woman that is now my <laughs> wife and the mother of my children. And she uh... is, she's born in Atlanta. So when Jordan Tech made me an offer, I was told that that's it. We're going to Atlanta. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just worked out for sure. Yeah. Very cool. Where is Georgia Tech? I don't know about great schools or really good schools. You know, where does Georgia Tech lie? So in the engineering universe, it's an absolute top school. It's a top five in, in the U.S. So high quality, and it's also massive. So if, if you look at engineering at UCI, we're a third of engineering at Georgia Tech. Uh, so it's, it's big and it's good, and it's been around for... 140 years or so so it's also old in 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 that sense so all of that was was kind of cool it it was interesting to be part of a university that has such a strong focus on engineering partially that's why i left also as we may arrive at because i was looking for other things but yes it is in the engineering universe it's one of the top universities gotcha did you say you started to look beyond that a little bit what was the reason why again well, so, so I've gotten to the point. So now we're jumping around chronologically here. But I, uh, oh. you know, a, a few years ago, I, I, I started to feel that all the big defining questions of our time, how do we feed a growing planet? How do we make sure we leave an environment for our grandkids that's not burned to the ground? How do we structure our society so that robotics and AI and communication technologies make us better and richer and more creative as human beings and don't turn us into batteries in the matrix. All of those questions, right? They have engineering's fingerprints all over them, but engineering by itself cannot answer those questions. It requires profound collaboration. And I started to look for places that seem to be profoundly collaborative because I really wanted to be at a place where as an engineer, I can be part of really enriching the human experience by working together across multidisciplinary boundaries. And uh, fast forward to where we are today, that's what I found at UCI. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've heard this and, you know, it took me a little while to really start believing it, but now I'm hearing it over and over and over again about the collaborativeness of the campus and how it's really emphasized. And it sounds like you're not seeing that a lot is that how you would frame it or or yeah, the let, op- let, me, let me turn it around so instead yeah. of saying it that i'm not seeing it a lot and which is a negative uh. it's way more pronounced here uh, at uci and you know you see it in i mean just the way we're organized architecturally in the middle of campus everywhere on the planet is a building or a statue or a campanile or something at uci there's a park in the middle and by the way if I want to go from engineering to humanities, I just walk across the park. Or if I want to go from engineering to physical sciences, I walk across the park. Everything is connected through a park. I mean, there is something powerful about that. So that, that's one aspect. The other is we genuinely get along. I mean, there is a joke that I've now learned about deans that deans tend to stab each other in the back, except the dean in the School of Medicine who will stab you from the front. That's the joke. <laughs> No deans stab each other here. We genuinely like each other and we work together and it's cool. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Very cool. 
you know, sometimes California gets kind of a reputation, but I don't care. I like it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Can you briefly describe your engineering development over those 20 years in, at Georgia Tech? What were you working on and how did it grow? Yeah, so... So my area is, is robotics. I'm a right. robotics professor. And in particular, I am interested in, in teams of robots or swarms. And I've been mesmerized by nature. You have you know, flocking birds or schooling fish. And I've been really trying to understand how does that work? And how can we reproduce this so we can have fleets of self-driving cars that coordinate their behaviors on our, our interstates or you know, teams of tractors driving across the cornfields in Illinois in a, in a coordinated way that is effective and safe and reminiscent of nature. So, so my, my research has always been, well, for the last two decades, has been swarm robotics, large teams of robots, air, ground, underwater. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that's my kind of career progression on the research side. Or a career. I, I'm, I'm in this area. I started out from, as we've established, a very mathematical view of the world. I've gotten much, much more practical the older I get. Now, uh, you know, the biggest joy in life for me now is seeing a bunch of robots doing interesting things. I love that. And yeah, the theory needs to be there, but that's not where I'm spending my most of my energy. But I also discovered something, which is, if you're talking about career trajectories, the thing that's magic about universities is not only the research. That's cool. And it's amazing that you can go and do whatever you're interested in. But it's being surrounded by students. I, I discovered how much I love teaching and what a privilege it is to play a small part in, in, in these kids' journey. And they, you know, they show up on campus and they go through, take all these classes. And at the end, they go out and do amazing things in the world. And I got to play a small part of that journey. That's that's powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here. I was just walking through the engineering gateway area, and there was, you know, how they have the chairs and the tables, and, and I saw it looked like a professor just sitting there with a couple of students, and it was just yeah. like, I was just like, yeah, yeah, very cool. It is cool, and it's uh, one thing that I also I, I've. I've been doing this enough now that I, I, I talk to people that graduated and had me in a class and I barely remember them. And they say, yeah, remember this conversation we had in the hallway? That changed my life. Yeah. And I barely remember it. But yeah. so I, I keep telling the faculty members now is, you know what? Take five minutes. Uh, talk to students. We may not think that it's a big deal, but it's a big deal for our students. So yeah. do that. Very good. Very good. Here, here. I also hear that controls is an area for you. Are you referring to that when you're talking about it, or is this a different area too? No. So uh, there is a, a kind of discipline known as control theory or controls. And that's my, if you will, intellectual hammer. And the nail is robotics. So that's the application domain. But control theory is really the study of how do you make systems? And systems can be anything from a self-driving car to the state of a, of a pandemic to a stock market to the electrical grid. How do you make something like that behave in a way that you want it to behave? So that's control theory. How do you control these 
what's known as dynamical systems that evolve over time. Wow, that's so big. I wanted to ask you about the grid, the, the USA grid. There's a lot of talk about it over the last several years. And you sound like a really positive guy. And I'm like, oh, man, this is really scary and doesn't look good. Can you tell me your perspective on it? Because it sounds like our infrastructure is really old and falling apart. Yeah. I mean, from a just infrastructure marvel point of view, it's it's remarkable. We have, I mean, so you know, we talk about AC, alternating current, right? So what that means is that you have oscillations and you have this massive grid spread across the entire continent. It's actually slightly more than one grid, but oscillating together at 60 hertz, mm-hmm. it works most of the time. And that is remarkable. In fact, I, I get a little bit of vertigo just thinking about it. But the reason it works is because you have these mechanical components that are what's called passive. So, so you're not actively doing stuff. They're just kind of making sure that everything oscillates uh, in, at the right frequency and nothing strange is happening. But it is aging. And now you're adding all these non-mechanical things like you know, electric vehicles and solar panels and wind farms. And all of a sudden, you're adding kind of software components to the grid. And it's wonderful because we're modernizing it and we're adding clean energy sources. But at the same time, managing this thing is going to be harder and harder and harder. And uh, the second you start doing things like adding software nodes into the smart grid, you're also opening yourself up to vulnerabilities. So it's mm. at the same time, I mean, we're getting smarter and cleaner, but we're also opening ourselves up to potential mm. you know, malicious attacks. Mm. So I am also nervous. I think, I mean, I, I am, I'm impressed with the grid because it's almost mind boggling that it works. If you think about it, that, you know, the current that's coming out of your, <laughs> your outlet here in Southern California is oscillating in phase with the current that's coming out halfway across the globe, more or less. I mean, that's, that's crazy. It is. So, but yeah, it, it does worry me. And, and, but it's also, you know, it's an opportunity. We have to start thinking about these systems in, in different ways and take things like security into account already when we design them now, because it is going to just become increasingly uh, complicated right? and mm. complex. And when complexity comes, exposure. Gotcha. So when does UCI enter the picture that you hear something might be open at, at UCI? I, in, in fact, just excuse me just for a second, Professor, because there, there will be people who have joined us late. So let me just update them. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is UCI Engineering School Dean Magnus Eggerstadt. And we've been learning all about his personal journey. And now we've turned to his first 20 years of his career out of school, which were at Georgia Tech, the Georgia Tech Institute. And now I think he comes to a crossroads. And the question for him is, when does UCI enter the picture and how does it become bigger and bigger? Yeah. So first of all, I'm glad to hear you say Irvine. I didn't know that's what it was called, but now we know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
No, so I, I, I already talked about how much I love being a professor. And one thing that's fun about this job is that you can redefine what it means. And I uh, found myself, you know, a handful of years ago, actually, starting to look for impact that went beyond just the footprint of my own lab. And I, uh, I became the director for the Robotics Institute at Georgia Tech. So we were 30 faculty members. You know, engineers, computer scientists, physicists, psychologists, philosophers. Wow. Just trying to think through how do we use robotics to make the human experience better? And how do we use robotics for good in the world? And I love that. But at the same time, I was surrounded by researchers, faculty and grad students. And, and I started to miss the point with the university, which is at the end of the day, students. So I became the the school chair in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Georgia Tech, and I like that. And then, as we've already discussed, I started to feel that to really have impact on the big questions of our time, climate, energy, how do we get medical health care to underserved corners of the planet, it, it, it requires more than just electrical engineering. In fact, it requires more than just engineering. So I started to look for a place that seem to have the kind of swagger and audacity to go after these big questions and also to have multidisciplinary collaboration built in somehow into the fabric of, of the place. And I must be honest, I didn't know that much about UCI, but I was talking to uh, our vice chancellor for research, Pramod Karganagar, who I known for a while because we're both in control theory. And I had started thinking about going to the National Science Foundation as a way of having impact. And he had been head of, of all of engineering at, at NSF. So I wanted to kind of pick his brain a little bit if, if that was a, a route where, where one can be part of really moving the needle on the societal level question. And he said, yeah, sure. But by the way, UCI, we're looking for a dean. You should really think about that. So that's kind of how, uh, how it started. Oh, okay. Yep. How does it progress? Do you come and visit? Do you have some phone calls? How, how does that go? Well, so, I mean, it's, it's certainly more than phone calls. So it's, yeah. uh, you have a bunch of uh, what they're calling airport interviews. And they call the airport interviews because it used to be you fly in, you meet some committee at the airport, and then you fly out. Uh, uh, so that you're still flying under the radar if we're staying in, uh, in metaphor uh, space. Uh, uh, okay. So this was done by Assume. Then there, it was the full-blown two-day uh, interview with a million different people, also uh, via Zoom, which it's hard to get a feeling for a place remotely. Right. But I, uh, I, I went from being kind of interested to really liking what I was hearing because there was you know, this kind of swagger and energy and, and multidisciplinary vibe, but also a genuine desire to, to find our next gear somehow that that we weren't done. I, I could tell that UCI as a university wasn't done yet. And that was, yeah. that was cool. Yeah. So then, you know, I, I start talking to the provost. I fly out. And I think... When, that, when, when was that about? Like, so you came in July. So when, when does that, you know, fly yeah. out to meet the provost? Yeah. So, so now I think we're, we're in March, maybe. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and I flew out. I wanted to kick the tires a little bit, talk to yeah. not only the provost, of course, but, but to meet with the department chairs, with the associate deans, get a feeling for really what's going on at, uh, with the school. Because, you know, you, you can't take a job without actually being, right. being there. And yeah. 
I think the way that I ended up, well, there were two things that happened that en- ended up me enthusiastically saying yes. One was uh, some of the faculty members in engineering took me out to dinner and we went down to uh, Laguna Beach. We were sitting on the, on the rooftop looking out over the Pacific. The sun was setting. It was gorgeous. Is, and, that ho- is that a hotel rooftop thing or uh, do you remember? Or? Well, I don't, it was a restaurant. I, I don't I yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but, but here's, here's what, what made it really yeah, good yeah. for me. There was a single cloud on the horizon and yeah. people kept apologizing for the bad weather. And I was like, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's yeah. funny. Very, yeah, so, so that was one thing. The other is uh, I'm married to a poet and... Uh, Hal Stern, the provost, at some point stopped talking to me and started talking to her instead. So she's going to be uh, joining the English department, teaching poetry in the fall. So that's that's part of the the joy yeah. of UCI, I think. Yeah. Yep. Very good. So then you wrap things up in Georgia and and come now. I guess there's a little complication because your daughters are uh, they're seniors in high school, right? Yeah, I have uh, twin daughters that are seniors in high school. So, so that's, a, that's a big deal. So are they still back in Atlanta right now with your wife? Yeah, so they're, they're wrapping up their senior year. And who knows where they will end up in the fall. Yeah, Hopefully yeah. somewhere close. Very good. So are you commuting or do they commute or you kind of split the, the difference? Yeah, I mean, commuting makes it sound a little too frequent periodic and frequent so so yeah. i am uh, i mean i'm here uh, but yeah. i am flying back every now and then i've taken yeah. uh, quite a few friday night red eyes which uh, <laughs> I, I barely could do in my 20s and now yeah, right. uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm useless that entire saturday but yeah i, I try to go back uh, at least once a month preferably a few more uh, twice a month and and they come over here a few times so, yeah, we're, we're making it work. It, it's not ideal, but the plus side is I, uh, I get to, uh, <laughs> as dean, I, I, you know, I meet with a lot of alumni. I meet with a lot of faculty. I have a lot of dinners, and I can kind of embrace that a little bit more. Yeah, right. Very good. Please tell us about the hyper-energy efficient environmental monitoring robot called Slothbot. <laughs> I will. So, so this was... As I talked about previously, I've spent my career primarily thinking about teams of robots and agile, fast robots that are doing interesting things fast and quickly. And I went to Costa Rica a handful of years ago, and I got got kind of obsessed with sloths. I thought they were just evolutionary strange. How could they exist? They're just sitting there, right? (laughs) Waiting to be eaten. How can nature support these slow... Potentially quite tasty animals. So I... Are they kind of like koala? Because I don't really know that much about them, but I mean, the word kind of says sloth. Okay, do they just sit there eating leaves waiting to be threatened or something? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And in fact, it's funny that you brought up koala bears because sloths are uh, what's called folivores, leaf eaters, and they're arboreal, which is code for tree dwelling. Uh, uh... So to eat leaves, you got to be big to break down this complicated uh. food because leaves are not easy to break down. The animals that, that eat leaves typically have a long digestive tract. Cows uh. even have multiple stomachs, right? So you have to be big uh. to be a leaf eater. Okay. But if you're going to live in trees, you can't be too big because then you fall out of the trees. So right. animals that fill this particular ecological niche 
have roughly the same size and they all freaking don't do anything uh, <laughs> like koala bears or sloths or some lemurs they're just sitting there eating leaves and and chilling <laughs> wow well yeah. okay so how does this reappear in your work yeah your, your <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question so, so i decided you know what i gotta do slow robots i want to make robots that are slow because i think this is interesting and then i started thinking about when when the, when do you have to be fast versus when do you have to be slow and when you're out in natural environments let's say on the farm field somewhere tending to plants you you have to move at the speed of a plant or if you're doing things like sitting up under the tree canopies in, in the rainforest, monitoring, you know, the, the carbon dioxide levels in, in the, in the atmosphere, you don't have to be fast every now and then you got to get out from under the, the trees and, and sunbathe and recharge the batteries. But most of the time you're just sitting there. So it turns out when you're measuring things at slow time scales, like a lot of the phenomena in the natural world, Slow is fine. It's better to be energy efficient if you're going to survive for multiple you know, seasons out in, in, in these environments. So all of a sudden, I decided I was going to do slow robots. And now I found the killer app, which is environmental monitoring. And the next is kind of obvious. Now you make a sloth bot that is you know, just slow. The sloth bot is actually uh, cable driven. So it's hanging on a, on a cable or a network of cables. Most of the time, just monitoring things in, in the microclimate. So things like, you know, humidity, pressure, temperature, luminosity. And every now and then it goes out and sunbathes and it comes back in. And we deployed it for, for over a year in the Atlanta Botanical Garden because this, this happened at Georgia Tech. But now we're rebuilding the sloth bot and we have worked with the, the Crystal Cove Conservancy, the state park. So... The sloth bot is actually going to become a beach sloth. So it's going to be uh, on the beach monitoring coastal dynamics uh, because it turns out that our beaches are very strong and early indicators of climate change. Wow, this is so, great. Yeah. Professor, what's really amazing is that uh, I love Crystal Cove. And for about six or nine months, I've been down there I because I go to the beach cottages whenever I can and get lucky enough to get in. And I keep saying, hey, is anybody from UCI here? Is anybody from UCI? Because I want to do a show about UCI people doing research because I got it. You know, they got to be connected with UCI. And here you are. You, I don't have to ask. You I'll, just walk into my life. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Fantastic. Is, yeah. And I also, I mean. Being new to Southern California and to this part of the world, Crystal Cove is amazing, right? It's, yeah, it's a fantastic place. So, it, yeah, it, let's, it, do a, let's do let's do a follow up. Yeah, uh, yeah, sounds great. But what I hear you also saying is like, so you know, and excuse me if I don't describe it in the right way, but it's like, it's like almost like, are you d describing like nano environmental plant growing like? Are you literally going down to the level of plants and analyzing their environmental conditions to where they'll grow most efficiently and what they need? And, and are, is, is that what you're describing? So, so what I'm really describing is a, a mobile platform that you can put sensors on. And I'm collaborating with people that are doing that work. And yeah. My hope is exactly to go where you're describing. We're not there yet. So, uh, uh -huh. but, but, but I am, I'm the guy that builds 
the platform where smarter people will put their plant sensors and, and yeah so, so that's how i think about it and and i keep getting asked why don't you just put a camera up there and why do you need this <laughs> this fancy you know, sloth uh, robot but uh, but the key is really it needs to be in areas where you may not have access to sunlight. I mean, the tree canopy is a beautiful example of that. So you have to go out and sunbathe and recharge and then go back in. And same thing, if, if you're down amongst the plants, uh -huh. you can't count on that being stationary is the right thing. You may actually have to move just for the purpose of, of recharging batteries. So, so it's in many ways, it's, it's a glorified camera that can move but yeah but it's also i think one of the it's an extraordinarily compelling science instrument yeah 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 it's amazing how you know you know as we're watching you know you you see on youtube and so forth that you know the cameras will be out there and you'll see wildlife like you've never seen wildlife before and now another extension of that is like what you're just describing here so that's that's amazing do you enjoy, see, you know, the Starship robots that wander around campus delivering food? Do, do you enjoy seeing those? Is, is there, uh, I'm, I still chuckle whenever I see them. Is, is it fun for you? Or is it like, yeah, it is. And of course, I mean, the first, the first couple of weeks, I would jump out in front of them and start, see if they yeah. responded correctly. And I've, I've tried to uh, see how much can I hurt them? So steer them in the wrong direction by kind of nudging them and, uh, uh so, yeah, I, I actually enjoy them a lot. And one thing that I love about them is when I started out, you know, 25 years ago, we had no idea how to do this. What they are doing is, is something we didn't know how to do 25 years ago. And now it's a commodity. Now there are commercial products out delivering sandwiches to our students. And I like seeing that, too, because to me, it's testament for where we are in the field and what has happened during my academic lifetime. And that's cool to see. Yeah. 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 You know, autonomous car development, you know, that's just, huge, you know, especially a few years ago, I think there was almost a, an anticipation that in six months it, we were going to have those all over the place. Can you tell us, you know, kind of where we are with that? Yeah. I mean, it's so complicated. It seems yeah, to me. And, and, and here's the thing. I mean, we are all confused and the confusion is that autonomous vehicle or car researchers they talk about levels of autonomy and level five autonomy is a car that can drive autonomously as well as a human in any conditions we are nowhere close to that uh, nowhere close to it uh, and then level four is uh, same as well as a human under curated conditions level three is blah 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 level two is you know driver assist and level one is cruise control more or less right and when we say self-driving cars a lot of times we mean level three autonomy, which we we're kind of know how to do, but people think we mean level five. So there is a huge confusion about what we actually mean when we say it. So we are nowhere close to having cars that can drive as well as human beings in all conditions. But where we really are is we can manage, you know, good driving conditions, clear lanes where we have good GPS fixes and, uh, and I think the, the key is going to be, you know, I would not be surprised if we see self-driving car lanes, for instance, where, you know, you have self-driving cars uh, and then you have lanes where you, you have HOV lanes, you have self-driving lanes and you have other lanes, right? Or 
areas that are certified for self-driving cars and areas that are not because right now we're seeing a lot of actually you know crashes that come from people being confused about what their car what their cars can actually do and not do right where people mm. you know we've all read about people in teslas that you know take a nap mm-hmm. even though tesla is not claiming to be level five but people think that they are level five at mm. moment. Mm-hmm. gotcha gotcha yep. okay Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the UCI Conversations interview with the UCI School of Engineering Dean, Professor Magnus Eggerstadt. Right now, he's going to tell us all about the six individual departments in engineering. Here we go. How about if we take the opportunity right now, because we, we are starting to run out of time a little bit, is like there's six departments in your school, and they all seem like they end with engineering, which kind of confuses, I don't know, for me, just being as an outsider, but you know. Could we just kind of talk about like, I'll just, the first one, the biomedical. Could you briefly just tell us what that is in your school? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's not a coincidence that they all end with engineering because we're all engineers and we yeah. all use engineering tools. But my medical is, is really looking at primarily medical applications. So medical devices and how do we use engineering? A pacemaker is a beautiful example of a biomedical engineering device, but how do we use engineering tools in medicine is really what, what BME or biomedical engineering is, is all about. Incredible. And then chemical and biomolecular. Yeah. This is a, a newer department. It's, it's actually one of our fastest growing departments. So this is really connecting chemistry. So think batteries, for instance, to engineering. So how do we build better batteries? How do we build fuel cells for hydrogen cars? So it's really taking the the very, very small chemical world and making it engineered so that we can actually, let's say, use chemistry in in a number of of different applications. And and I think particularly kind of energy type applications is is where the, the killer applications are for chemical and biomolecular engineering. Gotcha. Are you familiar with David McMillan's work? Would this have been his area? He was the Nobel Prize winner this year. Yeah, I mean, he's not a chemical engineer, but if he was an engineer, he would be a chemical engineer. Absolutely. Gotcha. And then now your area, electrical and computer science. Yeah, so this is, uh, I mean, traditionally, electrical engineering is anything having to do with, with electricity, but it has evolved much more into most of the things that we associate with futuristic technology is is electrical engineering and computer science so things like you know autonomy things like you know cyber security things like the internet of things and cloud computing and blockchain technologies a lot of that kind of quantum computing this lives in electrical engineering and computer science so it's become kind of the the futuristic arm of engineering, if, if you will. It's also our, our biggest department in terms of graduate students and faculty. Interesting. It sounds like it's too simple to classify it as because we have a school of computer science and I was starting to think, well, that must be software and then the engineering aspect must be the hardware, but that doesn't sound like it's necessarily the case, is, is it? No, no. I mean, yeah. it's so it's a little... Uh, complicated and I, I started to poke around why do we have electrical engineering and computer science and then a school of ICS but but one thing that I, I like to say is that the kind of computer engineering computer science side where where we are 
it, it's where where it matters what you're running on. So it's not necessarily the hardware, but but the computers care about you know energy and what does the architecture look like? Are we running on a big beefy thing, or is it a server farm, or is it a small microprocessor? So we care about the hardware or the architecture in a way that let's say pure computer scientists don't. But it is it's not an easy division, and I think that's another example of the multidisciplinary reality and a lot of times the way we're organized at universities are you know historical statements rather than you know where the the real action is mm-hmm. very good then civil and environmental yeah this is you know buildings and bridges that's the civil side but what civil and environmental engineering has really become is kind of engineering at societal scale how do we think about our roads how do we think about our you know, broader infrastructure and the environmental piece really comes in and plays a big role because things like water, things like wildfires, things like, again, energy really plays a a big role in, in our society. So that's why civil engineering, which is a very traditional engineering discipline, you know, structures, combines with environmental engineering to really be a statement about society and how we think about engineering and society. Wow. Material science. Yeah. In many ways, that's the most physical science facing. It, it's really dealing with materials, but from a, an engineering point of view, how do we build materials that we can use? So, you know, smart textiles or really flexible circuit boards, or how do we 3D print bones or organs or things that are you know, materials rather than traditional engineering. How do we build new metals? I mean, this is material science. And uh, the chair in the Department of Material Science and Engineering, she likes to remind me, and I think this is funny and kind of insightful. Yeah. Materials are key to the human existence because we've named entire periods in human history after materials. Stone <laughs> age, iron age, bronze age. These are materials. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. And then finally, the sixth one is mechanical and aerospace. Yeah, so this is kind of, you know, anything that moves falls under this. It's, yeah. you know, cars, airplanes. It's by far our most popular undergraduate major. This is, uh, or majors in, in this department. But it is the kind of, uh, if you will, what most people associate with engineering, big things that move. Wow. Oh, well, yeah. for, first of all, I'm jealous. This is where you work. Oh, my. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, do you want to just say a little bit about its IDEAA, inclusion, diversity, equity, anti-racism and access? Yeah. So one thing that is fascinating, and I think one of the superpowers of UCI is how diverse we are when it comes to Latinx students, we're, we're 40% Latinx. And even more when it comes to first generation students, we're over 50% first gen students. That is powerful. And what's amazing is we're not this vibrant, high achieving university despite this, or the diversity of our student population is not kind of a sprinkles on top. We're, I think this successful because of it. This is part of what makes us special and really compelling but at the same time it's really really important that 
students that are here in, in engineering, for instance, feel that they belong. If you're a first generation student and you don't have th this rich family history or what it's like to be in college, you know, you need to be part of a cohort. You need to feel that you belong. So we have something that we call OAI, Office of Access and Inclusion, that is focused in part on outreach. So we go out to K through 12 schools, we talk about engineering, and we share this with computer science. We talk about computing as well. And this is you know, kind of a normal model. But then what we also do is what I've started referring to as in-reach, meaning we reach into our current student population and make sure that they are part of meaningful, rich, cohort-based experiences that by far transcend the classroom so that it's not enough just to bring people to campus. We make sure that when they're here, they actually belong and they are able to be successful as engineering students because I genuinely believe that this is one of the things that makes us special. It's, this is our superpower. Wow, well, fantastic. How about the future of engineering? Can you just comment on that? Yeah, I, uh, I think the future of engineering is hyphenated. And what I mean by that is that it's not classic engineering by itself. It's engineering hyphen something else. And uh, I've started talking about engineering plus. So engineering plus other areas. And in fact, what we're pushing here in the School of Engineering at UCI is engineering plus health or engineering plus medicine, which I think is super vibrant and important. I also think engineering plus climate or engineering plus environment, this idea of engineering plays such a critical role in how do we not just understand climate change, but combat it. And then engineering plus society. I genuinely believe that engineers need to team up with social scientists, with people in the humanities, people studying law to really imagine what our future societies should look like. Because I talked about this earlier. I believe that engineering needs to be a force for good in the world that makes people richer. And I don't mean in terms of money, but just richer in terms of quality of experience here on this planet. And that is not engineering by itself. It's engineering plus something else. And I think the future of engineering is actually engineering plus something else. Wow. Wow. Well said. If we're going to do that, we better be pretty good at what we're doing. Can you just talk a little bit about international competition? If I look out into the world, I say USA, China, India. Can you classify it like that? Or how would you do it? Yeah, this is always a little tricky, right? But I would add Europe to the mix. So traditionally, you know, you have auto manufacturers and German engineering. And, and when it comes to kind of the industrial side of engineering, Europe has always been very impressive. I think we've all heard that, oh, we need 10 million more engineers for the workforce. Right, and, right. And that's true. But, but what we're doing here is engineers, we're not a commodity in the sense that we can just turn a, a faucet and, and crank out four times as many engineers. Right? I mean, our engineering students go through a, a really both rigorous, but kind of textured and rich and connected experience. And we can't just add more and say, oh, look at that. We're now producing more engineers. So, so I think it's a mistake to go the route. And I'm going to China has gone the route of they're cranking out tons and tons of engineers. And there, Engineering has become a commodity. And when it comes to the quantity game, we're going to lose it. 
because there are more people in China than in the US. But mm. where we, I think, are strongest is really this idea of reimagining what the engineering education should look like and being innovative in what it means to be an engineer and graduating engineers that not only know how to solve problems, but know how to ask questions and how to combine with other disciplines. And, and I, I think this is the US, right? I mean, we're innovators. And that is, comes from part of how the engineering curriculum is structured. And I think that's where we're going to see. We're going to keep leading the pack on the innovation side, but we're not going to win the numbers game. Gotcha. How about in terms of exciting areas in your school? Anything that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, we've touched on a lot of things having to do yeah. with, with energy and with environment. I mean, mm -hmm. we have arguably the best hydrology, so water resources group on the planet, or at least in the, in, in the country. I mean, that's an area where, where we're extremely strong. We are very good in kind of medical devices. We are very good in the kind of intersection of autonomy and robotics with the broader you know, computing ecosystem. So we have areas where we're dominating, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting a bunch of them. Materials is, is another strength. So, you know, going back to my engineering plus, engineering plus medicine, engineering plus environment, engineering plus society, those are three major themes that we are good at. Fantastic. And I just note that uh, two UCI engineering professors recently were elected to the National Academy of Engineering, one of the highest professional designations. Could you say the two professors? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're absolutely right. The National Academy of Engineering is in many ways the highest professional honor that an engineer can get in the U.S. One of the new members, her name is Julie Schoening, and she is the chair in our material science and engineering department. And it's outstanding that she got in. And then we have Farsad Naim. He is in civil and environmental engineering, more on the kind of the structure side. And it speaks extremely highly for, for us as a program that we got because we're not that big of a program. We're a mid-sized program and getting two members in, that's powerful. And finally, I know upcoming Friday, March 11th is the 2022 Winter Design Review. Can you please just briefly tell us what that is? Yes. So I've talked a lot about our research and we're very proud of our research. But at the end of the day, the thing that we are the most proud of that matters the most in what we do are the people that graduate from our programs. And the design review is really where the rubber hits the road. It's where our senior engineering students showcase their senior design projects. So things that they have been working on. Sometimes they work with some companies, sometimes they work with a professor, but it's really showcasing what they worked on and also the value of a UCI engineering education. And it's really cool. It's open to the public. And you get to see tons of futuristic and exciting engineering projects on full display. Fantastic. Dean, thank you so much. We've run out of time, unfortunately. I had a ton more questions, but hopefully for another time. It was really exciting and, and really thrilling just to go through what you guys do. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. This was so much fun. And we ran out of time either because you had too many questions or if I talked too much. So I don't know which one it was, but this was great. I appreciate it. I had a blast too. Thank you again to UCI School of Engineering Dean, Professor Magnus Eggerstedt. You can hear it in his voice, his energy, his humor, and his love for his craft. 
his love for teaching, and his love for his students, and how he wants to grow engineering with the medical field and society by looking for ways to make this world a better place through engineering. It's a powerhouse. Kudos to everyone in the department and for Dean Eggerstedt's leadership. You've been listening to UCI Conversations on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you happy trails and peace through respect. Go Ukraine! Take it away, piano man Fred Kaplan with Signifying.